0: Clive Barker is an internationally acclaimed writer, director, artist, and playwright. His latest novel is Days of Magic, Nights of War. It's the second in the planned quartet. Welcome to the show, Clive. Thanks, Rick. Clive, let's talk about your beginnings as a writer. The first thing you did really were plays, weren't they?
1: That's right. And uh, it really was my pretty much my ambition that that was what I was going to do. I was either going to be a painter or I was going to go into the theater. Not necessarily the
0: highest paying occupations in the world. Well, that
1: was my mother's point. And and, uh, one of the changes, one of the key changes in my life was that uh, I got into the Royal College of Art. Uh, This would be when I was 18, 1970. And, um, And it was a big thing to get into the Royal College of Art. You know, I was really happy to be doing it. It would have taken me away from Liverpool down to London. And my mother said, if, if it is the last thing that you do for us as as your parents, please don't spend this last portion of your education becoming a painter because it's a waste of time. You'll never make any money from it, blah, 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 blah etc." And um, being a loving son and she being an Italian mom and, and therefore quite forcible, I said, okay, you got it. I'll go to university but I said I thought this was the catch that would get me out of this. I said uh it's now I think it was then July and I said you know the the time for me to be getting into university is way past. The the courses begin in September. I think it's too late. And she pulled a special one got me as you know got me in to see one of the professors and and um and he said, yeah, we'll take you in. So out of all perversity, frankly, I studied English literature and philosophy, thinking that philosophy was equally as useless as painting, as, 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 a, fund, as a fund creator. Um, and I actually I had an okay time. I didn't have a great time. In a weird way, though, it, uh, it saved me from something when i think about what the royal college of art was painting in the 70s i think i would have had a wretched time because uh, i'm a fantasist and uh there was no room for that kind of work in what what was going on in the uh in the royal uh, college of art at that time it, it was a uh, there was still the echoes of of, of uh abstract expressionism you know, uh, sub Rauschenberg, sub uh, sub Pollock, sub all of their stuff. Still playing themselves out in England at that time, and I would have had you know I would have been uh, I would have been in arguments from one end of the three years to the other. So I think in a weird way she saved me, but it meant that I didn't get to pick up an oil oil paint to paint until I was forty four. Wow. <laughs> now, let's
0: go back a little bit further. Yeah. What started you reading, writing, and what got
1: you interested in painting in the first place? Uh, I was a very lonely little kid. I was a very insular little kid. I was a very shy little kid. I was a fat little kid. I was a short-sighted little kid. I was born in '52 into a city which had been very heavily bombed in the Second World War, and was not a particularly kid friendly place. Um there were bomb drawings in a lot of places, uh, which were actually kinda cool places to play. I kinda liked those, but my mom didn't like me playing in those kind of places. Um, I was a terrible sports kid. I was useless at sports. I was I was your basic issue geek. And um and so uh really my my thing was, well, what, I, what am I good at? And my, my parents insisted that I, I join the Boy Scouts because they thought that would be useful for me. And, of course, I couldn't put up tents and I couldn't start fires and, I, you know, whatever else. But I could tell ghost stories. I could tell really mean ghost stories. And I got this from my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who was Irish and had the most morbid streak imaginable. I mean, she loved to tell Roy, my, my younger sibling, um, and I the most terrible, terrible, terrible tales, which we of course loved. I think actually I liked them rather more than Roy did. I think Roy was actually rather freaked by them, but I loved them. And she would pepper her conversation with stories uh, which were perhaps true, perhaps not. There was a uh, there was a fellow called Springheel Jack, who was Liverpool's version of of Jack the Ripper. Uh, who uh, this would be uh, late eight, late nineteenth century when my my grandmother was actually alive in the late nineteenth century. Believe it or not, she lived a long, long time. She lived till she was ninety six, ninety seven, and. Uh, she she claims to remember on Lime Street, which is the you know, one of the major thoroughfares of Liverpool, this fellow with these spring heels that leapt out of the darkness and could leap twenty feet and came down at you with with his his scalpels gleaming and would cut your throat in an instant. And uh you know, I I loved that stuff. I just loved it. <laughs> well, no wonder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's great stuff. Here we are now. Yeah, no wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, thanks, thanks, Gran, You know,
0: and That's she a gift.
1: she was um. She was, uh, she had been visited in her life many times by cancer, and she had 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 half a stomach taken away, one of her lungs, a bunch of other bits and pieces from her interior, and so she drank Guinness, warm Guinness. You know what? Guinness, you know, oh, dark, dark stout. She would put three bottles of, of, of Guinness beside the open fire at the beginning of the day. She would then put tripe, you know. Yes. yes. Tripe uh, in milk uh, with onions uh, on for a slow simmer, and that would be what she would eat throughout the day. Her theory about tripe was that it was easy for her to digest having only half a stomach because it had been the sheep's stomach anyway, so it was sort of half on its way to being, you know, taken in. And so she, the, the house stank of, 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 of tripe and Guinness and and resounded to her wonderfully throaty, because she smoked throaty growl, telling tales of spring Hill Jack. Well, no wonder.
0: Yeah, and here we
1: are. And here we are. <laughs>
0: So, when did you start producing plays and how did you get about get yourself into this? Well, again, not a money
1: maker. No, well, no, no, absolutely not. I again, it was actually the Boy Scouts. I mean, we actually I, I started writing plays for the Boy Scouts. It was something again I could do. And you know, um kids are always looking for th- ways to ways to uh legitimize yourself to feel good amongst your peers and there weren't an awful lot of things i could do honestly um and i was terribly shy but um when i wrote uh and this is still true when i when i write i i feel i i take on the personas of the characters i'm writing about and i feel a great confidence on the page that i don't feel in real life and um um, it's been a it's it's been a a wonderful way for me to connect with life, uh, almost one remove. And uh, I'm the kind of guy who, if 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 I can be persuaded by my husband to go to a party, which is very very uh, unusual, but if if he can persuade me to go to a party, I will be sitting in the corner somewhere being as inconspicuous as possible, listening in to conversations, you know, because that's the stuff of, you know, the next story. Who knows what's being told? And, of course, L.A. is full of people telling the most outrageous stories about nip and tuck and, you know, (laughs) whatever else.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how you came to write the Books of Blood. Okay. What was their
1: first publication? Were those
0: the Sphere paperback?
1: Yes, they were. I I, ha- I had found myself an agent, uh, a theatre agent, who was, um, and I don't think he would find this description offensive, an elderly queen, and he was a very nice gentleman, but he was an an older gentleman and very rather like Quentin Crisp, you know, that sort of figure, and he liked theatre. He liked Terence Rattigan and Noel Coward. God knows why he (laughs) had me on his books. Anyway, we were not having a lot of luck selling my plays. I mean, there were plays called The History of the Devil and Frankenstein in Love. It was no surprise that this man who preferred private lives was not having a great deal of success selling his plays. And so I went to him and I said, Vernon, I have written some short stories Good, he said, thinking there was going to be a lot of tinkling of martini glasses in my tails. And, um, of course, I I give him uh, three stories, I think. The Midnight Meat Train was one of them. Oh, yes. Which kind of speaks for itself. A story called Rawhead Rex, I think, was one. And I really do forget what the third one was. Anyway, he was wonderfully appalled. Oh, good! I was. I felt. <laughs> I felt really good about this. He, he said these are really, really disgusting and distressing. And I said that's good then, yes. And he said, well, I, I don't know anybody who's going to want to publish these. He didn't. He publishing wasn't his thing. He didn't have any other uh, writer writers as opposed to playwrights on his books. He was a theater man. Um, but he did know Olivia Golanz, who uh, was at that time the doyen of of Golands Publishing, which published a lot of science fiction, a little bit of horror. The tale goes that these stories arrived on, on Olivia's table, that there was the desk, that there were the there was a silence for a little while, and then a horrified shriek, and the papers were (laughs) were thrown back at her secretary, and I was told to, or uh, she was told to deliver them back to to the sick little author who would provided them never to be heard of again, and uh, so that was rather bad news, and I said to Vernon, you know, maybe we should be going to a a paperback house. Maybe you should just be going to somebody who publishes this kind of thing, somebody who wants something a little raw and, and um, a little sexy. And this was 19, I published in 1984, so this must be 1982, 1983. I'm about 30. I'm getting a little desperate. I've never had a job. You know, right? And so I'm, I'm thinking this is, this is, this is. I'm going to have to be a teacher if it's not. If I'm not very careful, and so I, uh, uh, I, I found uh, that Sphere Books, which was this uh, really at that time quite small outfit, um, was publishing a lot of original horror, though no short stories; they were all novels. And so I said, why don't you just try these guys? And a little while later, and this was just one of those lucky things, I, I later found that they hit the slush pile. These books, these stories, three of them had hit the slush pile. Nobody was really interested in them. They were short stories anyway. And a secretary, a lady called Barbara Boot, who is now one of the eminent uh, um, editors at Sphere, uh, but was then a secretary, had picked them up and said, you know, these are good, we should think about this. And so they took me out to lunch, and they said, "Have you got any more of these stories?" I said, "Well, I I don't have any written, but I have a lot of ideas." And they said, "Well, we would publish three books of these at the same time if you could come up with enough ideas." And I said, y- "You know, you you picked the right guy. I'm there." And I suppose it was another year, you know, and then or two, and then. Uh, Uh, We published the first three books, and uh, nothing of great significance happened. I mean, they they appeared on the shelves. There were no reviews, but um, they did find their way into the hands of Stephen King. And this is where fate, you know, and and luck and circumstance, you know, is just, you just thank God for it. Because Steve said uh, I've seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker, and that was uh, that was well since turned into something of a monkey on my back. But <laughs> at that time, it was a really tremendous thing for to be said. I mean, this was the man who was selling a million books a week, or whatever he was doing. I mean, he had these phenomenal sales, and still is, and still is, and and was, and still is. Incredibly respected, and um, and I never met him, and and I didn't. Don't to this day, I don't know how the book came into his hands, um, but uh, it was one of those quotes which just. You While know, well, it was the quote which turned my career around. I remember seeing those
0: books of blood, mm-hmm. the first paperbacks, on the shelves in a bookstore in monrovia okay it was a drugstore in monrovia that for all its weird drugs also specialized in having british import horror okay i saw saw them with the the robert r mccammon editions ball and all these other things and and they all just kind of creeped me out a little bit which i i liked yeah yeah no i think it was
1: it was fun because at that time horror was beginning not to be taken seriously in the sense of reviews. I mean, that came later. Not that much later, but but it was still a little ways off. But people were starting to read horror in public, let's put it that way, in a way that they hadn't previously. I mean, there had been a long time when horror had been the sort of forgotten man of fiction, and... <clears throat> the only other one that had fallen into that category really was was spy fiction, and John McCarrey's fiction had the the smiley novels had recently snatched uh, spy fiction out of the doldrums and into the realms of literature. Exactly right, and Steve and Pete Straub and Anne Rice and myself uh i think collectively kind of did that for horror over the next few years and it was um it was very satis- it was very satisfying to be uh i went on uh, i went on good morning america with uh with Steve and uh I remember that appearance one of the highlights i mean the three and a half minutes of pure bliss you know this is my hero you know <laughs> And Joan London is there, clearly appalled of what she's even... I don't think she read the books. I think she just read the summaries of the stories. She, you know, completely appalled. And I, I had recently been to a... <clears throat> excuse me. I had recently been to a uh, uh, an autopsy, uh, you know, in the interests of research. And casually mentioned this on the interview. And Joan London made this strangled sound (laughs) of horror, and and I think, in in a way, quite unwittingly, I sort of played into being a bit of the bad boy. I mean, I really wasn't the bad boy at all, but uh, I was, you know, the young tyro at that, the Turk, as it were. At that time, I was thirty-two, something like that, and. and then I went and made Hellraiser and confirmed everything that everybody had ever thought about about <laughs> me being a twisted, you know, son of a gun. Let's talk,
0: how did you make Hellraiser? How did you uh, go make the leap from film and playwrights into making what became a major motion picture? Well,
1: it, 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 it was never intended to be a major motion picture, I think is the answer, Rick. I mean, it would cost $900,000. And uh, which would probably buy you, I don't know, you know, a couple of shots in CGI now. Right. And um, I had uh, had two movies very quickly made from material from the Books of Blood. Actually, not one from the Books of Blood and one from an original story, both of which I hated. The movies were called in in america one's called transmutations which i believe is un, i truly believe is unwatchable and the other is the aforementioned rawhead rex which is the close to unwatchable. Cl- close well i think it's also unwatchable um and, and i was banned from the sets of both the movies i mean i had all the bad experiences i wasn't paid you know it was just a horrible experience and i thought darn it i've directed for the theater I know a lot of actors. Um, I like actors. I like horror movies. How hard can this be?
0: Not too hard, apparently. Not too hard. Well,
1: I mean, I think I was very lucky. What happened was I I lucked upon a, a, a producer, Chris Figg, who had never produced a movie before, but had been David Lean's sidekick. So he had learned at the hands of a... A really cool director you know he knew what he was doing and chris was i think even a couple of years younger than i was i was then 33 he was 31 um my editor was david lean's editor uh, he, he'd 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 been one wow. of the, yeah i mean he'd been one of the editors on on lawrence of arabia and uh dickie martin's his name and uh he had uh He'd also was also uh john schlesinger's editor i mean he, he you know in other words, I was surrounded by these people who knew what they were doing, and i didn't i mean i'll be frank i mean I knew what i knew the story I wanted to tell I knew how to scare people, but I didn't know anything about lenses or any of that stuff i was uh i was a real i was a real uh novice and uh, Chris was kind enough and smart enough to say, well, uh, I'm going to surround this guy with people who who know what they're doing, and hopefully he won't be so pig-headed that he'll ignore their, <laughs> their advice. And I didn't ignore their advice. actually had a very good time shooting the picture and uh, took a, a boyhood friend of mine, Doug Bradley, and uh, put him in the part of, of the the guy with the pins in his head. It was a, a small part in the first movie. We, we thought nothing of it. It wasn't a particularly large role. Though Doug was very good in it, he had a nice round Shakespearean tone to his voice. And there's a long history, as you, I know, know that... Uh, of of English actors doing very well as both as villains, you know, whether it's Jeremy Irons as Scar in 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 Lion King, or um, as monsters. I mean, one thinks of Karloff. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we were um, the Brits. Something about the Brits and our well-rounded vowels, which makes us sound instantly, I guess, to the American ear more. Vicious and cold and sinister, and sinister, exactly, than our uh, than anybody else. So, here's Doug. He's uh, he was then, gosh, he was three years my junior, so he was 28 when he first did the first Hellraiser movie. And um, I, I had done the designs. Uh, drawn the designs a long time before and I gave them to the makeup guy. The makeup guys had done aliens so they knew what they were talking about.
0: Boy, oh, that's
1: uh, that was yeah. good. Oh yeah, no, I was I was really protected, Rick. I mean I really was. Um and I tell you, Helen Keller could have made a good movie with these people <laughs> around, you know? And so I was uh, I had I had a, a blast doing it. And had no expectation then of the movie at all. I mean, there was talk of it going straight to video, which was a big deal at that time. Video was just coming up, a lot of horror movies going to video. I didn't have much problem with that. I didn't know America very well. I'd been over here a few times uh, doing a couple of minor book tours, but I was not at all familiar with well, I don't think any of us were that familiar with actually thinking back with the idea of being number one over the weekend, you know. Mm-hmm. That's a very recent phenomenon, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah.
0: It's 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 the past few years it's yes. really come
1: out. Suddenly we were obsessed with how much money the movie made and so on. Well back then I, I don't think any of us knew and I certainly didn't know. So I I came over here, did a couple of of, of interviews. Not a lot, and uh, showed the movie. Got some pretty darn uh, ugly uh, uh, reviews, um, and then the movie was a number one movie for its week, and and I got this excited telephone call on Monday, "You're the number one movie, you you know," and I was, "Oh yeah, cool, yeah, cool, yeah." I was, <laughs> what did I know, and and. You know, it did mean something, as it turned out. I mean, it meant that they made another eight of them. <laughs> there's eight now? I think there's eight. I haven't seen the last three, so I don't know. Oh my Lord. Yeah. It might be only seven. I'm not, you know, Rick, I'm not sure. <laughs> there's a bunch more.
0: <laughs> Both in print and in film, you pioneered a level of violence and gore that Really hadn't been seen on the page or on the
1: screen, what drove you to do that? um I think um well my first my first answer was going to be a joke, and I have to go with my first answer. It's fun and it um and a, part of me thinks that, <laughs> that's, that's a perfect, true that's, you know that's not a joke that's n- true it's true um i think but I think that um I was aware that as an audience member, and I've been seeing these horror movies, I've been seeing these horror movies since I was 18, uh, remembering that, uh, you know, we were a lot fiercer about not letting uh, young people into movies in, in England until we were 18. So, though I did creep in with a friend of mine called Norman, believe it or not, to see Psycho, um, uh, when I was 16, uh, you know, you know, on a double bill with uh, George Powell's War of the Worlds, and uh, that was that was very exciting to me to see something that was as scary as actually I found both movies scary. Oh yes, and uh, and so I enjoyed being scared, but I I felt I feel still that really at the heart of what makes an experience a movie experience, um, horror movie experience, powerful, is the sense that you're going to deal with issues which are body-related. They're to do with what the body looks like on the inside, looks like in the places where we're not supposed to look. And I think one of the reasons for that is because we're... Well, let me give you an example. There's a very small scene in, in... in the first Hellraiser movie, in which some characters are moving a uh, a mattress up a up a, a stairs, and there's a a nail sticking out of one of the 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 posts and on, on the on the um, on the uh, on the of the banisters, and and you can see this coming that this guy's hand is going to get gouged by this nail. Not a big gag. I mean, it was not a you know not a hugely sophisticated piece of special effects or anything but i watched that scene with an audience and everybody just oh just covered their faces because we've all done things like that you know very often the more baroque and more extensive the grand the grander the genial the less the audience hasn't has a response curiously um You know, by the time you get to the end of Hellraiser, and you know there's blood all over everything. You know, it's like the last act of Hamlet. Um, And nobody, I think, is 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 as upset as they were seeing that single nail do do its job. Um, But I do believe that that part of my job as a as a frightmeister, if you will, is to keep is to keep. Um, upping the ante. You know, you start with some small things and then it gets grander and it gets grander and then it gets really grand. And I think one of the things that's happened unfortunately, and perhaps we'll talk about this later, but in in recent horror movies is that CGI has allowed us to get very grand. I mean, CGI has allowed us to show everything. And everything isn't necessarily what we want to see curiously um we have to be kind of clever about what we show it's not the point the point is not to the point is not to show an autopsy but to just show enough to make the audience go oh please stop that and um it's a test a horror movie is a test it's one of the reasons an initiation i think i was on a uh this is a surreal thought i was on a uh chat show with, run by dr ruth um with with west craven and uh dr ruth says uh so, uh, Mr. Barker, you make these horror movies, why Why is it the, the, the I'm doing a terrible accent, why is it the uh, the little boys and little girls, oh, they all want to make love while they're watching horror movies? And it's true, there is a huge amount of ma- making out in horror movies. And I think it's because it's a perfect time. You know, you're watching a horror movie, the girl squeezes a little closer to the boy, the boy squeezes a little closer to the girl. Or in these times, the boy and the boy, or the girl and the girl, and um, and it's a it's a kind of I can't stand this. Says the says the girl, covering her eyes, and the boy says, Yes, ah, well, I can, and he keeps keeps looking. It becomes one of those initiations, and it's been a very interesting thing learning. Uh, because there's been a lot of writing about this recently. I mean, in the last twenty years, there's been a lot of theorizing, mainly by the French French philosophers. Uh, Julia Kristeva, for instance, uh, has written very interestingly about why we why we look at this material and why, particularly, young people look at this material. Um, at the age of fifty one, I find horror movies much harder to look at than I did at the age of thirty one. You know, I've watched more people die.
0: Sure. Now, while we're talking about movies, you've said movies are dumb, and they're getting dumber. hmm Now... I you, hold to that. <laughs> I wouldn't disagree, but you yourself are a movie maker. Yeah. Do you intend to return to film? It's been a while since we've seen a Clive Barker movie. Do you yeah. intend to return to film yeah. as a director and a writer?
1: I've certainly... I have a script uh, at Universal right now. And really, it, it comes down to this, Rick, I will do it if I can do it my way. But honestly, if I can't do it my way, what's the use of doing it? It's The great thing about doing books is, um, and particularly the case with the Abrap books, where I'm actually providing paintings as well, um, it's really, it's it's my vision. Nobody's messing with it. And the trouble with movies is, um, as soon as they smell a dollar, let me give you an example. I didn't see anybody from the uh, the the funding company, the the guys who were providing the nine hundred thousand dollars for Hellraiser, for um, for most of the movie, for most of the shooting, the nine weeks of shooting or ten weeks of shooting, uh, until. Um, they began to get the feeling that maybe the movie was working. And then suddenly I had a visitation from the suits, and I was taken out to dinner, and this was all new to me. I thought they were just going to tell you what a fine chap I was, but no, they had ulterior motives. They wanted me to start doing it their way. And one of the things, the first thing they said was, is the guy with the pins in his face cannot talk cannot say a word and i said why he said well they said there's actually a guy called bob ramey he said who uh, went on to do a lot of other things but bob said to me uh he said uh michael myers from uh the halloween doesn't speak uh jason voorhees from the friday the 13th pictures doesn't speak uh Freddy Krueger says a few one-liners, but it, he pretty much keeps himself to himself. Your guy cannot speak. And besides which, he speaks English. I mean, it's those well-turned English phrases. I mean, it's just not scary. And I said, well, you know what? And I, I didn't have much to lose, to be perfectly honest. I mean, they were paying me $21,000 to write and direct this picture. I said, um... You know, what if you want to do that, you do it, but you can do it without me. I mean, I was it was pretty straightforward. I want to do it my way, and if you don't want to do it my way, then that's, that's cool. I'll just let you do it. And, of course, they immediately backed off and said, okay, okay, do it your way, do it your way. And we never tested the movie. Uh, too small a movie to test, um, which was a blessed thing. When oh, you, absolutely! You know, I actually said to I had a conversation with Bill. Bill Freekin once, and when some Bill said, uh, "Bill said to me, if he tested the Exorcist, he said, we would never have seen the movie that that became, you know, such a huge, uh, phenomenal movie around the world because the the test, the testing, the testees." Would have uh, would have critiqued the masturbation with the crucifix scene and the vomit scene, and you can't have the head turning all the way around because her neck would be broken, and how's that even logical? And you know all that kind of stuff. And his movie would have been cut to pieces by a committee. And but again, his movie was too small, uh, and he was a little too powerful because he'd won a bunch of Oscars the previous year for. Uh, wasn't uh, living here French Connection right, French Connection I think, okay, right. I think. Uh, and uh, he uh, so he, he, he you know he did uh, he, he you know he got his movie out the way he wanted it I got my movie out pretty much the way I wanted it they revoiced some of the characters because they weren't American um, but pretty much it was my movie I mean I lost a few seconds here and there to the MPAA but there wasn't a lot and uh, and the, this will amuse you. There was a there was a uh, we we had a scene and upst- upstairs in the, the the attic of this old house where this damned figure Frank has been brought back from the dead by the shedding of his brother's blood, um, and he is he is. Obviously subject to attacks by rats because he's not entirely himself right now. He's lacking a skin, you know, and I think rats probably go after you if you're lacking a skin. And there's a short scene in which we see a bunch of rats have been nailed to the wall and they're twitching. Well, I am a very serious animal activist. I would never do anything, not a fly, not a maggot. Nothing's going to get harmed in a, in a movie for me. So they these needed to be mechanical rats, well the the BBFC the British Board of Film Classification, as it was, which is the English form of of the MPAA, said these are real rats, and I said, honestly, they're not real rats; they're mechanical rats. And they said, no, they, they're real rats. You have to cut them from the movie uh, because you've 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 no you've 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 abused real rats. And I said, "I have not abused real rats, and I will bring in the mechanical rats to prove it so next day, I brought in the mechanical rats, <laughs> made them twitch um sufficiently to satisfy the b b f c and the scene stayed in the movie. I mean, those sorts of things are go you know are so so weird uh the b b f c at that I'm sorry the m p a at that time um um I had done a sex scene which was really fairly raunchy for its time and had a a little bit of spanking going on in it. And then some, you know, some fairly serious sex stuff. And I was sending, after this big meeting, when they'd all come over and see me, they wanted the dailies sent over, because I was shooting in England, to L.A. every day so they could... see what I was shooting they were watching me more closely boy yeah and so I sent these sex scenes over, which I was rather proud of I mean the closed set I'd you know I'd really got some pretty amazing s- stuff out of the 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 actress and the actor very brave did, did some pretty outrageous stuff and I got this call from from uh, probably from Bob Ramey, and he said, Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. The sex stuff is amazing. We can't use any of it <laughs> And I said, What's the deal, Bob? He said, well, you, know, you 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 can't you can't I mean you can't do that. I, mean, I can put that in a movie, I mean they the BBSC the sorry the MPAA won't allow it. And I said, Look, if you want me to reshoot this, tell me what I what the rules are and then I'll reshoot it, but I'm not going to reshoot it in sort of in a in a vacuum, you know. And uh, and this was one of the instructions, reckon. I, I swear, I wish I had it still. I probably do have it still somewhere. That I was allowed two consecutive thrusts of the buttocks, but a third thrust would be deemed obscene. So during the love scene, I was allowed one thrust, two thrusts. Then I needed to cut away to daffodils or, you know, a scene with horses. And then back. <laughs> or back to rats to, on the wall. Or to rats <laughs> on the wall. And then back for third and fourth thrust. And I think it, it was that which began a lifelong, a really a lifelong contempt for the way that we are sort of manipulated by these people because the MPAA are really making it up as they go along. And, um, you know, it's always amazed me, for instance, that that there is such horror about sex in American movies uh, and such indifference to to, to violence. Um, You know, when you think the act which has brought us all into being is actually something you cannot see represented. Otherwise, it's an NC-17. Um, on the other hand, you can go and see, I went to see a Resident Evil last night, which is a movie, you know, it's a 90 minutes of violence from, you know, with very little dialogue to interrupt the gunfire. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, there were kids sitting in there. Sure. You know, having a final
0: time. Well, it's amazing to me the level of violence and gore that you can see just on unrated, right there, television. You're right. Today. You're right. It's the kind of thing that I think in back when Hellraiser came out oh, yeah. would have been an NC-17 movie. And yeah. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I,
1: I think we've changed. I mean, the culture's changed. I mean, going back to 1960 uh, when Psycho was made, Um, was released. It was condemned roundly, as you know, by almost every American reviewer as marking a new low in cinematic depravity. This was just the worst that cinema could get. It could not get any cruder or viler than this movie. Now, of course, it's an American classic, and we look at the movie and we think, "Well, what's the, what, what was the problem?" We forget that that was the first time that a toilet, an operating toilet, had ever been shown in an American movie. You know, she throws the remember she 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 tears up the letter, she throws the pieces into the toilet, and then she flushes them away. Um, first time it's ever been seen. And there were people, there were forces in the MPA who thought that Hitchcock shouldn't show that, that that was just not, that was indecent. And, and now we, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, I'm just saying this is the way the world is, that if you go to the 6 o'clock news now, and I, you know, now we're moving to very serious subject very suddenly, um, you know, you, you see stuff from Iraq. Uh, which is heartbreakingly violent. And one of the things, one of the distinctions that I've always made is that horror should always have an element of the supernatural. That's been part of my game plan that really you could always unplug from the reality of it because there was always something demonic or magical or whatever going on. in so other that's words, why you deal with that y- way. Yeah, you could deal. You could say, "Well, this isn't. This isn't going to happen at home." I've never made a movie about a psycho killer or anything like that. I'm not saying that anything about those kinds of movies. Um, I've enjoyed a number of them. Um, you know, uh, Silence of the Lambs, an amazing movie, but I just not the, the cup of tea for me. I've always felt that. Uh, as long as I had this this sort of uh, supernatural element in it, I could help unplug the audience from this being a little a little too much for them because they are always they always had the uh, oh, well this couldn 't happen to me element you know it 's what Spielberg did in uh, in poltergeist you know so effectively I mean you know I think poltergeist is a fine picture and it 's one of the fun things about it is that, you know, you don't think for a moment it's going to happen in your house. Um, and and so I have seen, we have all seen in the last 30 years since I made Hellraiser, you know, 30 years, can't be 30 years since I made Hellraiser. 20. 20 years, yes, yeah, thank you, gosh. Uh, 20 years since I made Hellraiser, uh, um, we've seen what we can look at on television or what we can see as we open a magazine intensified a hundredfold.
0: um, Part of that is is what we've seen on the news, too. that's
1: That's really what I'm talking about. I'm not really talking about the news. I mean, I think, you know, I think it started in America with film from vietnam if i'm right exactly
0: that's what i was thinking some of the scenes where people the street executions the monk who set himself
1: on fire those are the kind of things that you know i mean good god they're watching i mean i'm not watching because it's something i can't face this is very interesting how this is the distinction in my head Nothing could make me watch one of those beheadings on on video. You know the beheadings of these these poor. Right, captives. there's one reported, I believe, today. Nothing could make me do that. Um, now I can I I can uh, I I I just get sick. I mean I'm I'm sort of you know a bit squeamish about that stuff, and I suppose a part of me thinks it's immoral. To take any kind of satisfaction from watching something like that, whereas, uh, if there's a supernatural element or if it's a fantasy element, I don't feel so problematic about it. Maybe I'm kidding myself, but it's 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 how I come to terms with with the kind of work that I actually, as a as a viewer, really enjoy. I I love to be scared. Let's talk a little bit about
0: sex and sexuality in your work? Ooh, let <laughs> uh, Beyond the the gore factor, I think yeah. what really upset people when your work first became noticed was the amount of sex, the variety of sex.
1: <laughs> I like that. Yeah. The size of the menu.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the size of the menu was a bit larger than <laughs> other menus we'd seen here before. I like that. Um, what draws you to that you seem you've professed an interest in pornography. Yeah.
1: Sure. I think yeah, you know, it's a 6 billion dollar a year uh business in this country. Well, I I'm, I'm not spending that much on magazines, so <laughs> somebody else must be buying, you know. I think uh, I think we're very hypocritical about this and I think uh uh It was quite interesting to me you know i have lived here for twelve thirteen years now, and i am uh about to become a citizen and uh and so i am really i love America i really do it's in my blood and my heart now and and I'm very happy to be ready to vote and become a part of of the of the culture in that way as well as, as, as you know, the, the way I've attempted so far. But I also think there is a deeply puritanical streak in American culture which isn't in a lot of European culture. And I say a lot of European culture because I think it is in British culture. But I don't think it's in French culture or Spanish culture. Um, you know, I, an example... Um, you know, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing. I was in I was in Europe during that time and there were a lot of European uh um really uh people who were uh, uh people who loved this country, who found it very hard to defend and I was amongst them, the sort of The moral complexity of our response to wanting to know about the dress but at the same time condemning her for having the dress and condemning him for doing the thing with the cigar at the same time wanting to know what he'd actually done with the cigar. It, we, in other words, we want our, I was about to say, cake and eat it, which is, I don't know what that's going to do for metaphorical <laughs> life, but, it, you know, I think we, we live in a very complicated world, in other words, where sex is concerned, and I wanted that to be a part of what I was writing. And horror fiction has always had sexual subtext, you know, Dracula, um... The vampires are as, as Anne Rice has proved over and over again immensely sexual there are power games which are arguably sexual power games being played out every time a monster picks up a beautiful you know uh, bikini clad or you know like the 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 girl picked up by the monster from the black lagoon you know and i mean that famous still of the- you know the beauty and the beast. That has a sexual energy in it. And I wanted, in a way, to sort of call the bluff of that and say, well, enough of enough of this as subtext. Let's just deal with it as text and see how it works. And one of the things that I found interesting about being able to do that was that you still make the stories very scary. Um, it wasn't as though just half-mentioning this stuff was really what was... Was feeding the scare. It wasn't as though a subtle, a subtle uh, handling of the sexual stuff was really what was making the stuff scary. Um, uh, I could be quite blatant about the sexuality, uh, and as you said, a fair range of kinds of sexuality. There were gay characters. There were, you know, there was even a love affair between a girl and a gorilla in one of the stories. I wish, and it and it happily is that know? the new
0: murders in a room yeah, exactly yes. yeah and and the
1: marriage you know, um, so uh, it's a happy ending for everybody. But the the uh, my point was that um, in a, in a form of fiction in which you are writing about the body, and you're writing about the way that the mind influences the body. And the way we are shaped by our desires, how could you not mention sex? How could sex not be a part of that kind of fiction? It seemed hypocritical to me.